As we read about the day Easter burned. Now, I'm not a huge fan of the, the name Easter. I think it's confusing. I like resurrection better, obviously. But I think it is a good word to remind us of a day, of a time, where we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. But before we see fully the resurrection, we have some matters to deal with, don't we? There's some confusion. Have you ever felt deep disappointment? Nobody in here has ever been disappointed, I'm assuming. We've all had a perfect life full of unicorns and rainbows. It's all been great, right? No, we've all been disappointed. You expected something truly great, and instead you were let down. Have you ever put your, all your Easter eggs in one basket only to watch them fall and shatter? Being a Christian means that we have highs and we have lows. You know, I've been your pastor for two and a half years now, and it has been a very joyful experience. But I've had personal highs and personal lows during this time. And as I have walked with you through corporate highs and corporate lows, I was reflecting on this the other day that there had been one, one week or one day where I go from a baby dedication to a funeral, to preparing that, to go from a wedding during, on one morning to getting some terrible news. I go from counseling a marriage that's going to work and they're going to strive to work together to watching one fall apart completely, all in the span of one day. And if I let that low be the determiner for my emotions, for my feelings, for everything, I will be miserable. I will have zero joy. And I bet that's the same thing for you. I bet you and your Christian life have had some hard times, some lows. If that was the end of the story, man, what a miserable existence would we have, wouldn't we? But we don't have an end to the story. We have the beginning. So as you walk to fight joyfully in your life against sin, you recognize that God's Word speaks to His character. And what better day than Resurrection Sunday than to discuss the highs and the lows of life? Highs and lows of life in our passage is really the theme that we have going on. And so we have the lows. The morning begins with a moment of disappointment. It's a, a moment of confusion. Now, verse 13 starts with the same day of the resurrection. So we want to put ourselves into these people's experience right now. We want to think about what was it like to watch the man that you had hopes to be the conquering hero crucified on a cross. All his disciples abandoned him. Everyone ran away from him. His mother watched him die. The same woman that an angel of the Lord came to and said, you are going to have the Messiah, the Son of God. The people that we have here on this road to Emmaus are um, his uncle and his aunt. Jesus' uncle and aunt are walking the road to Emmaus. So two followers of Christ are on this road to a village called Emmaus. We don't really know uh, where it is exactly. It's a short distance from Jerusalem. For them, even though it's probably more in the afternoon, it was a dark morning. It was dark. It was a dark 
experience. They were in the lows of life. Let's go ahead and read verse 13 through 24. Now the same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Well, there you go. There it is. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you are having with each other as you are walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. And we're going to stop there for a minute. Two disciples walking along. One is named Cleopas. The other one, I think this is the same Cleopas that is mentioned in John 19, uh, who is identified as his uncle, Jesus' uncle, walking with his wife Mary. So Jesus' uncle Cleopas and his Aunt Mary are walking down the road to Emmaus. They are devastated, discussing everything that took place. I mean, it's evident that they are discouraged. I mean, he asked them what happened, and they just went, they just stopped. You know, can you imagine how they are walking? I mean, I'm, you know, if you watch a loved one die, and you don't know why, and there's all this hope that's built up, and the hope balloon has been popped, and they're just walking, you know, talking about what happened, why is Jesus not here, why did he not do what he said, and they're just depressed. Have you ever felt that low before? Maybe you feel that low right now. They're discussing it. They believe Jesus to be this Messiah, this Savior. They were expecting this king to come and inaugurate or to begin to rule Jerusalem and defeat all his enemies. But he was crucified. He was put on a cross, died a horrible death due to years of Romans' practice. They knew how to kill people well and make them be tortured in the process. And so they had this hope. They were walking together discussing everything that had taken place. They had hoped that this one would redeem Israel, but they were disappointed. They had given up everything to follow him. Think about that for a minute. Not only was this a relative that has died, but they had given up their livelihoods, their work, to follow him for all this time. Man, talk about some hope. Have you ever put your hope in something like a car? You get a brand new car and you're like, this is going to be the vehicle that I'm going to ride until the end. And the next day you start hearing a clunking sound and you're like, oh no. And you take it to the shop and the shop says, eh, sorry to tell you, this is a dud. It's a lemon. And your hopes are just like, oh. Or maybe you were a kid and your, your, your parents promised you a trip to Disneyland and you misheard them and it was actually like, Wally's World or something, right? It was something else. They said, oh, we're going to take you to, to Target, but it was Walmart. You know, I, I don't know, but you, you can imagine that you had all your hopes in this thing. Or what about in a relationship? How many of you had all your hopes in a relationship to have it utterly collapse in a moment? You know what it's like to grieve, to, be, to feel lost, and that's what Jesus' uncle and aunt were feeling as they walked. It was a dark, dark morning. They were grieving and confused. And then this stranger comes up, walks up to them, and begins to walk with them. Right? That's what 15 and 17 were about. They were discussing and arguing. Jesus himself came near, began to walk with them. Verse 16, but they were prevented from recognizing him. Uh, this is obviously a, 
a mystical thing that we don't understand how they couldn't recognize him. And then he asked them, what is this dispute you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. It's almost like they couldn't even answer him. Why did God let them get their hopes up that this Jesus was not the one they were expecting? Was everything they believed a lie? Think about that for a minute. Jesus had taught them what Scripture teaches about Himself over and over and over again. Was everything they believed a lie? Would you have a a crisis of faith at that moment? The teacher that you expected, that you put your hopes in, is crucified. You know, perhaps you have felt this way. Maybe you've had your hopes up and you were disappointed. Maybe you feel insignificant or alone. Hear how, how few people are walking on this road to Emmaus. It's not all the 11. It's two. Two of his followers by themselves walking this road alone. A husband and a wife walking this alone. They are alone. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you're walking down this road of your faith, discouraged, frustrated. Others are walking by discussing things that are joyous, and you are in your own dark depression. Uh, It seems as if no one understands. Imagine those two disciples. They're walking along, and everybody else is going about their business, talking about what they're going to buy, what they're going to sell. And you're here like, my Savior just died. The one that I expected is dead. Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? While you're driving down the road, you're crying, and everybody's passing you, having a good time, maybe singing songs or celebrating. Maybe it's at church. Maybe you come to church and you're mourning the loss of someone. Maybe you have um, some depression that you are experiencing. Maybe there's something hard in your life, and everyone else seems to be happy. They're saying, He is risen, and He's risen indeed, and they're wearing their favorite clothes, and the little kids are wearing their big old Easter hats because that's just so cute. And you're over here in pain. Maybe you feel alone. But what we see here is that Jesus understands and personally intervenes. This couple needed to see Jesus for who he really was. Jesus positioned himself supernaturally, kept them from recognizing him. But he asked them a question and they respond. Verse 18, they respond. And it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you noticed this, but the Bible has a lot of sarcasm and irony. And I just love it. I eat it up because I'm sometimes pretty sarcastic myself. Verse 18, and the one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? Jesus, have you been living under a rock these last three days? I've been waiting all day to say that joke, right? They asked him, do you not understand what is going on? Are you the only one who doesn't, isn't aware of what's happening in Jerusalem? It was kind of sarcastic. And then he goes, verse 19, what things? He asked them, so they said to him, the thing concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech, before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death. 
and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some woman from our gr- women from our group astounded us. They arrived early in the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the woman said, but they didn't see him. That's the resurrection message right there. But are they moved in a joyous way about this? They're depressed. So they know the information that Jesus isn't there, but they're really kind of upset. So they have the the ironic, sarcastic response, asking Jesus, the risen Lord, if he knew what was going on. Jesus graciously listened to them tell the story. They had all the information necessary, but for some reason they could not get out of the depression. All the facts were there. The body was gone. Visions of angels who said Jesus was alive. But they were in this deep depression. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you have tried to help one that was someone that is so depressed and anything you say or is said to you just won't penetrate. You ever had that experience where you're just so depressed, someone comes along and gives you some good news and you're like, well, that's not good news. That's just terrible news. Right? Oh, you know, your, your uncle has given you $1,000. Oh, he probably wants something. It's not good news, right? And you just can't get Eeyore to get out of his tent because he says it's raining all the time, right? And, and we see that in people we're trying to help, and we see that in our own selves, that we just don't want it to penetrate. Anything you say will be more depressed. And I would say that in some of my most depressed moments, I stubbornly refuse to see anything good. It's all bad news. Bad news bears. And these two disciples are the same way. Jesus is dead, so is their hope. None of what is going on is good news. They even mention that it has been three days, so they know the prophecies that Jesus had said that in three days I will come alive. Neglecting to remember I think this is an intentional refusal to remember what Jesus said because he repeatedly said he would be raised in three days during his ministry. So the information is there, laid out clearly for these folks. Cleopas vented all his anger and frustration, his sinking fear and lack of hope, yet Jesus doesn't let his disciples continue to wallow in sorrow. He begins to respond. So think about this. The, the, the light has almost gone out in their hearts. They are hopeless. They are, it's dark. It's a dark morning. But then a light begins to dawn. Jesus' response lights a small fire in the hearts of these two disciples that begins to blaze. He starts by chastising them. He admonishes them. He rebukes them. That's the first thing he does. Jesus corrected their thinking, then started to teach them what God's Word clearly taught. Look at verse 25. This is so funny to me. He said to them, How foolish you are! 
Okay, thanks, stranger. I'm over here depressed because my, my, my nephew died. And you say, I'm foolish? He goes, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Well, thanks, Jesus. That's encouraging, especially from a stranger. And then he goes, wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of Scripture. He says, don't you get it? The Messiah has to suffer. Jesus, of course, in their eyes is a stranger, and he begins to point out how ignorant they were of Scripture. He says, look at Scripture. You are misreading it. He says, the, the Messiah you are expecting as a ruler is also prophesied to come and suffer. You chose what you liked about Jesus and missed what they didn't like. He said, you wanted this ruler, so you're all excited, but you missed the part that he has to come and suffer first. This exp explanation of, of important is important. Read verse 27 again with me. Look at 27. Then, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. So starting in Genesis, he begins to unpack who he is to these folks. He says all of scripture, Genesis, Exodus, Yes, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all about Christ. All of Scriptures is about Jesus Christ. Everything in here points to the Messiah. Jesus himself says the Old Testament is pointing to him. And of course, he then says the same truth later in chapter or verse 44 and 46 through 46. But here we see that God, the Word, made flesh, which is Jesus, explains the Word of God. What, a better what better teacher could you have than God, who is the Word, teaching you what God the Word says in the Word, right? What better hope could you have to understand this? And so he begins to explain. Can you imagine what it would be like to sit in that sermon? You're walking along, and this, this guy begins telling you, like, no, look at Genesis 3.15, where it says that the the, the offspring, the seed of the woman, will crush the head of the serpent one day. Oh, look at this sacrificial lamb that we have in the Passover. That's about this Jesus, this Messiah who dies. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see it points to Jesus, that Jesus must die. Jesus' mission is to come and die. How many people did Jesus chastise during his ministry for not seeing Jesus in the Scriptures? The teachers of the Old Testament sure bore the brunt of Jesus' ires. The Pharisees, who should know better, missed him. He says, you search the Scriptures looking for this salvation, and I'm standing right here before you. You're missing me. The apostles understood this reality, and if you read the sermons of the Apostle Paul, you see how he takes the Old Testament and points to Christ. He takes an Old Testament text and he preaches it expositorily, right? He takes it and breaks it down and points to Jesus Christ. Is there any other way to preach? Acts 26, 20, 22 through 23. To this very day I have had help from God and I stand and testify to both small and great. 
saying nothing other than what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah would suffer, and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to our people and to the Gentiles. Christ must suffer. Philip and Peter and so many other examples we could spend all day studying the sermons of the apostle and how they showed us Christ in the Old Testament. So Jesus' answer to two discouraged followers is that all the Old Testament promises are found, yes, in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. Man, how encouraging would that be to hear from the lips of Jesus that the Old Testament points to Jesus? Now, I don't know where you are in your reading plan, but my guess is you're probably in Leviticus or Numbers right now. And as you are reading through that, you may be like, what is going on in this passage? They're talking about holiness and lambs, and if this person has leprosy, you got to go here. I want to tell you, what is the only thing that if it touches something unclean, makes it clean? The altar. The altar, if it touches something unclean, makes it clean. Over and over again in Leviticus. Do you know what Jesus did during his earthly ministry? He touched unclean things and made them clean. So over and over again, in your Bibles, you need to come to tears overseeing Christ in these passages. The sacrifices of the Old Testament temple point to Jesus' atonement, the blood that was continually shed over and over again, the, the sacrifices, the feasts, the Everything points to Jesus. The Passover is the ultimate example of what God's wrath does. It passes over those who are painted with the blood of the Lamb. It's no accident that the front doors of our church are painted red because you enter in to the body through the blood of Christ. And then when you leave, you are covered by that blood as you go out. This is the whole purpose of those symbols. The ancient prophets, the priests, and the kings that are mentioned in the Old Testament point to Christ who takes on those same offices. Christ is our ultimate prophet because he gives us the word of God more clearly. He is the priest because he is not only the sacrifice, but the sacrificer. He voluntarily goes to the slaughter. He is our king because he has defeated death once and for all. Like this is so exciting. I don't know if you you can tell, but I'm about to burst out of my suit. I'm so excited about this reality that this is Jesus Christ. This is the Christ that we serve. Don't miss this. The resurrection is key to understanding our faith. People can sit there all day long and debate who God is. But if you look at Jesus Christ, that's God who came to die. You can tell I'm about to lose my composure back here. So maybe you're suffering right now. You know, you could be hurting. Maybe you don't have any hope. Maybe some of your discouragement could be from a misunderstanding of what the Bible truly teaches. God doesn't promise us a pain-free life or a struggle-free life. In fact, He bids us to follow Jesus Christ in His act of obedience. He says, come and die. Take up your cross and follow Me. In fact, we should be so connected to who Jesus is through the union of our relationship with Christ that His resurrection and His death is our resurrection and our death. We have been killed with Christ. That means we're dead to sin. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means we're dead to it. It has no power over us. 
Death, where is your sting? Paul over and over again says, I am a slave to Christ. Do you think of yourself as a slave? Because you are. You are either a slave to this world or you are a slave to Christ. You are a slave to death or you're a slave to the one who defeated death. That's the option. There is no other middle ground. There is no, uh, no gray area. The Bible truly teaches that Christ and Christians must come and die. But we have something better than mere relief. This world can only offer us temporary relief. Excedrin only lasts for a few hours. The cancer in your life that is sin cannot be cured by this world, by the morphine this world offers. You need chemotherapy. You need Jesus Christ to take away the cancer of sin in your life. We have redemption. He doesn't just patch us together with duct tape. He makes it new. He redeems. The dead come to life. Something dead comes alive. That's the glory of the resurrection. Something that was dead, and I don't mean mostly dead, I mean all dead, has come to life. There's no swooning at the cross. You think a Roman soldier would let something like that pass? These are men who are professional murderers, professional killers. They kill for fun. They train day and night to kill. Do you think that they would make a mistake? Oh, he's mostly dead. We'll just let him down. No. They are professionals. They know how to kill. They know what a dead body looks like. So verse 28 begins with, they came near the village where they were going. They were, so they're almost to Emmaus. And he gave the impression that he was going further. Oh man, he was going much farther, wasn't he? But they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table. Now, man, this is such a beautiful picture. He's reclining at the table. Do you remember the last place he was reclining? Okay. He reclined at the table. He took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. Jesus, why don't you stay a little bit longer? They asked Jesus to stay with them, and we have a recreation of the Last Supper. He's reclining at the table. He breaks the bread, gives it to them just like at the Passover meal, and as he's handing it to them, they see. Their eyes are open. They saw, they really saw Jesus, and then he disappears. They, of course, begin to talk. And compare experiences. They're like, what just happened? And they're talking to each other. And we see that in verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? Weren't our hearts burning? So Jesus took their depressed state. They were walking along discouraged and frustrated and confused. And he began to open up Scripture to them. And as he was doing that, their hearts began to warm. Uh, they were strangely warmed. And then verse, um, well, we'll get to 33 soon. But the more Jesus talked about himself in the Old Testament, the brighter the blaze in their hearts. The more alive they became. This spurred them into action. Darkness and discontent 
that lay heavy on them. It began with that small spark as Jesus began to say, no, no, look back at Genesis 3.15. His, the serpent's going to bruise the heel of the one that crushes it. Death was a bruise to Christ. Small, nothing. And then the small spark was beginning to be fanned into flame as Jesus began to set them on fire with the good news. Jesus is alive. And this set this deep blaze among them. Look at verse 33. That very hour, man, they are not wasting time. That very second, that minute, they jumped up and they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They went those seven miles back. They said, we're not, we're not going to stay here and hang out. We, we, can't take a, we can't spend the night here. We got to go. We got to go back to Jesus. And 33 continues. It says, that very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11. Why is there 11? Well, because Jesus was betrayed by one. You guys get this. And those with them, them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. So Simon Peter has seen Jesus. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And we could unpack this for days. But I just want to point out, they could not contain their excitement. Uh, they knew the eleven were gathering with the other disciples. They traveled in the dark back to Jerusalem. There's no street lights during this time. That means the bandits are out. That means that they are putting their lives at risk as they run back to the eleven. The bandits that like to, to, to lay in wait were of no consequence to them. They had no fear. Why do they have to be afraid? Jesus is alive. They came back to worship. They were so excited to get to worship, nothing was going to stop them. They described everything that had happened to them as well. And then the blaze that started a fire among the community that for over 2,000 years, no one has been able to stamp out. Think about how frustrating it would be to deal with someone like Paul. You're a Roman centurion, you're, you're Caesar, and you have this man talking about this other king that's a spiritual king, he has a kingdom, and you're like, I'm going to crush this guy. All right, Paul, let me tell you what. You're going to die. And Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I want to be with Jesus. Go ahead, kill me. He's like, okay, never mind. We're going to keep you alive and torture you. Paul goes, to live is Christ. Right? And so over and over again, we see how frustrating these disciples are because all these disciples were killed, with the exception of John, possibly, though he was dipped in boiling oil. So I don't know how much of a consolation that is. But they are all killed for this. Man, if this was a lie, if this was the secret, all 11 of them kept that secret, even to death. And none of them gained any wealth from this. This was not like a get-rich-quick scheme. Man, we can't even have people in our uh, political world keep a secret for five minutes, right? It's out. So think about the transformation with me. Two disciples... Sad, dejected, slowly making their way from Jerusalem, heartbroken, depressed. And then a stranger comes along and he opens up God's word to them. Probably nothing new. I'm sure they've heard these things a thousand times. Only it makes more and more sense with every word he says and every step that they take. 
their pulses begin to quicken. The Word of God becomes alive to them. I wonder if you find yourself hurting and depressed, maybe thinking that God's Word is enough. It isn't enough. It's not that His world has failed you, but it's because you do not know it well enough. We don't know it well enough. I think the road to Emmaus is very much like the journey that most of us take in our faith. You know, we have great hope. We hear the good news and we're excited about it. Maybe we even say a prayer or, or make some changes and we, we believe that, that this is it. And then hard things happen in our life. Someone dies. Maybe we just can't get over the sin issue. Um, and we begin to kind of get depressed. We're darkened with heavy emotions. Our thoughts are, are always negative. We can't get out of this depression. But then slowly, as you read the Word, you see Christ in Scripture, and you remember, I am called to suffer. Yet you're not alone. God is with us. Jesus takes us where we are, walks along the road, and explains His Word more clearly to us. Christ is walking with us. So as we walk the, the Via Della Rosa, the, the, the crucifixion walk that Christ walked, as we walk through this life and we're spat upon and, and treated with contempt and called all sorts of names, even though we may be guilty, we may not be guilty. As we walk that same path, we're not walking it alone. In fact, we're not the first people to walk it. Thousands upon thousands of Christians have walked that same road before us. At this very moment, Jesus Christ knows where each of us are. He knows you inside and out. He knows that you didn't think about him much over this last weekend. Maybe he knows that you thought about him too much over this last weekend. I don't know if that's possible. He knows you inside and out. And you have this small candle of hope. Or maybe you are on fire for the risen Lord. He knows you. The truth that must come alive to us and all the other distractions is this. Jesus Christ died on the cross in direct fulfillment of prophecy over 400 years before. If you think that this is an accident, read Isaiah 53. You will see the exact same crucifixion things happening to Jesus. Or go even further back in history and read Psalm 22. Jesus Christ died in the same way before the author of Psalm 22 even knew anything about Romans or about crucifixion. The death was brutal. Jesus suffered for the purpose of taking the wrath of God on himself, the Passover, in order to purchase a people for himself. Jesus died, Jesus died for the sins of his people. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 6, give us a gospel summary, and I want to read it to you. It says, For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. That, and this is Paul talking. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. What Scriptures is he talking about? Not the New Testament Scriptures. The Old Testament. According to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. 
take a minute and just catch the catch your breath. Because what Paul is saying is, I am writing to you this fact that there are 500 other people that if I am lying about it, will say, you're a liar, and discredit him. He wrote this down in the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So if I was to make up a story and say, guess what, guys, Benjamin Franklin, here he is. He came, and then 20 years later, I write a, a book about it and say, yeah, we saw Benjamin Franklin. And you guys are like, there's no Benjamin Franklin there. You guys would write letters to the editor. There would be newspaper articles. This guy's a fraud. There was no Benjamin Franklin at that gathering of Serivista Baptist Church. But instead, he writes this down during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. He says, this is the Savior promised in Genesis 3:15 in the garden. This is the Savior prophesied on Mount Moriah, the atoning lamb of the Passover, the tabernacle, and the temple. He is the sacrifice and also the high priest. All Scripture points to Jesus. All of this happened according to Scripture. It means that thousands of years before the event of Christ's death on the cross, it was prophesied that it would happen. This is an amazing truth. I hope you don't mind if I unpack it for just a few more minutes. There is more than a burning feeling. That's what the scripture teaches, right? There's more than just a burning feeling, right? This is not emotionalism that I am preaching here. You, know, you can go to some churches where they'll say, who here wants a new car? New car? I say, I see, I see something great about to happen in your life. If only you give $10,000 to the church in the next 20 minutes, you're going to have something great. Or I could be like David and Goliath. That's a great story. You got a Goliath in your life. You got to swing your thingamajigger. I don't know what it's called. Your sling. You got to swing it and take out the Goliath in your life. You are just like that. And the reality is, you're going to get pumped up. You're going to be emotionally excited. You're going to walk out the door and be like, What did he just say? I don't even. Goliath? What is he talking about? So you're going to go and you're going to find a big guy and punch him and get beat up? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happens. So we are not moved just by emotions. We're moved by the truth of the gospel. I'm not up here excited because my we sang some cool songs that have a heavy beat to it. I'm excited about the truth. The truth is he is alive. He's not dead. So God created all things. He created it perfect in every single way. Yet humankind falls under judgment of this perfect creator God because of the rebellion of their first parents. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were our representatives. They were our presidents. They are the ones that we have to face the consequences for their actions. And their guilt, we inherit. It belongs to us. We are all guilty before the Creator God. Every single one of us is guilty. We are in rebellion. We are in an occupied land, so to speak. We are like the Ukrainians and the Russians have invaded, right? We are in a foreign land occupied by a treasonous government. Satan is typically considered the ruler of the air and the powers of the principalities. We have this rebellion. And not only that, we have guilt by association because we belong to the family of Adam and Eve, but we have guilt by causation. We sin. We are actively disobedient to the God 
who deserves all glory and honor and the one that we should be praising and worshiping. Or look at it like a disease. You have a highly contagious disease. Let's just think about COVID since it's so fresh. You have COVID. Not only do you have COVID, but you give COVID to everybody else. Everyone we have here is in rebellion against God. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what the Bible says. Because of Adam and Eve, everyone is in rebellion against God, whether you know it or not. But yet God in His mercy does not destroy humanity completely like He could have. He could have in an instant wiped the slate clean, got rid of everybody. But instead, He promises redemption. Genesis 3.15 says that He is going to send a redemption. He will send a Redeemer. And that's what we see in the Old Testament. God revealing Jesus Christ and the plan of salvation. Finally, this promised Messiah actually comes. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, fully God, fully man, truly God. Truly man is a better way to say it if you're a philosopher because you like those fancy words. But truly God, truly man means He's 100% God and 100% man. That's a mystery. He fulfills promises made 400, 500, 600, 700, 800, thousands of years before. He fulfills these prophecies. Man, how many of you have seen Back to the Future? It's, it's okay, don't be embarrassed if you raise your hand. In Back to the Future, they think that by uh, 2000 or, or 1998 or something like that, there would be flying cars and uh, hoverboards and all this cool stuff. That was only like 30 years beforehand. They prophesied 30 years beforehand that this would happen, and they got it way wrong. Imagine the, the thousands of prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus that were fulfilled specifically about Christ. So he comes, lives that sinless, perfect life, which makes him the perfect sacrifice. If he was sinful, he would not be a perfect sacrifice. He would be blemished. And we are told that this Jesus is killed brutally on the cross. And we are told that Jesus takes the full wrath of God on himself. If Jesus was fully or only man, he could not bear under the full wrath of God. But if he was not man, he could not represent you and me before a holy and perfect God. So he had to be both. This wrath is poured out on the only innocent man in all of history. Yet being fully God, he is able to face it. And being the fact that he is man, he is our representative. So the question in your mind is, how can I be part of the forgiven people? That should be the question that you have in your mind. Is it, do I do some rituals? Do I walk, go to, the, go to Rome, to the Pope, and, and walk up these flights of stairs on my knees saying these, these specific prayers? How do I get saved? How am I part of the people that don't have to face the wrath of God? How do I get there? Is it confessions? Do I have to go and talk to somebody and tell them all my problems? Is it works? Do you get to wipe yourself clean of all your wickedness? Do you use your filthy, dirty hands and wipe yourself off? I don't know about you, but if I had greasy hands and I wiped them off and try to clean myself up, it would just make things worse. You cannot work your way to accept this free gift. Or just be good enough. I do my best. Or maybe I didn't know enough. Oh man, I got, I got to read at least 15,000 pages a, a day or a week or a month. Or I have to know all the intricacies of, of Hebrew poetry. Or I need to learn Greek or I need to learn Hebrew or even 
God forbid, we have to learn Latin, right? I have to know enough to be saved. No. The Scriptures tell us clearly. It says, repent and believe. It's very, very simple. Turn away from your sin. Tell God that you are a rebel and you need His mercy. Go and get clemency. Go and beg for mercy at the King who is coming. Because not only did Jesus rise on the third day, He is reigning in power with the Father and one day will return as the conquering King. Do you want to wait for Him in fear or in joy? Because that's the option before you. Trust in God as He describes Himself in Scripture. Trust in this Jesus and the work He did on the cross. You know, it ultimately it comes down to trust. Trust in Jesus Christ to save you from the wrath and rebellion and the, the punishment we deserve. Can you do that? Can you trust in this Jesus as He says He is? Now, if you haven't thought, thought through this, I ask that you do so. If you are not sure where you fall in this category, I think you really need to do some soul searching, some heart searching. First off, do I believe that I have an immortal soul that will belong in one kingdom or the other? You need to decide this today. Think about it today. If you need to, the elders are available to talk with you about this. Um, or I prefer to set up a meeting with you sometime this week. Don't drive crazy. Don't, don't be reckless. But come see me this week, and we will talk about what it means to be saved. What does saving faith look like? My question then is, do you know Him? Do you know this Jesus that is revealed in the Old Testament? Do you know Him? Do you know Him? I'm not seeing a lot of heads going up and down. That's scary. Do we know Him? Do we know, we don't, we're never going to know Him perfectly. But do you know Him? Do you see this Christ? Have you turned from your sins and turn to Jesus? Have you fled to Christ? My, my prayer this evening, or this morning, it's almost evening if I keep preaching, may God take the deadness of your heart and make it alive in Christ. I pray that your heart burns like the disciples as the Word was preached this morning. And may it continue to lead you to worship the risen King. And I want to end with this. He is risen. Father, as we close out the preaching of your word, I pray that you would enliven the hearts of the people here. Lord, there may be some who have a, a smoldering wick that there's only smoke coming out of it. They have maybe lost their faith. Maybe, maybe their faith is weak and, and they're just hanging on by a thread. Father, I pray that you would make yourself real to them today and this week. Lord, I pray that you would take those that are dead in this congregation. I know that there are dead men walking in this congregation and that you would make them alive in Christ today that there would be no more sorrow no more pain um, that we recognize as not being only something that Christ experienced but we experience it in Christ the tears that Christ shed on the cross the blood that he poured out before he went was shed for us as well Lord, we know that there is no forgiveness of sins without the remission 
or without blood. There's no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And Lord, you poured out your blood to cover a people. Lord, as these people walk out the doors that are covered red, that they would recognize that they walk out through forgiveness, that their sins are not held against them any longer, that they, don't, they do not belong to the kingdom of this world, but the, the kingdom of Christ. And you are a benevolent, loving king who would die for your own people and have died for your own people. Father, we're so humbled, humbled by this truth, by this reality. Father, I ask as we do Easter things like eggs and bunny rabbits and all that, that we don't lose sight of the true purpose of our worship, the resurrected King, living today. Lord, it is true that indeed you have been risen. May you settle the, the doubts in our hearts through the blood of the cross. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.